0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: From 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Let's pray. Lord, we read from this section of your Word, from 1 Corinthians 15, a section given by you through Paul a long time after the things that we are looking at in 2 Samuel. But they talk about the same plan. The kingdom of God come. We see it a little further down the road in First Corinthians. And we look still further down the road to the end, the kingdom of God finally come in fullness with every enemy and every ruler and every authority made subject to Christ the King. He must reign. He is reigning by your authority, by your gift, Father. He is reigning moment by moment, putting every enemy down. Until he's done, and all the kingdom and all of its fullness shines. He's about that right now. Bless your holy name. But we don't see it all, Lord. we see kingdoms in conflict here right now, even within our own hearts, let alone outside of us and and all the neighborhoods and all the nations of the earth. And I pray this morning, Lord, that You would speak through Your Word from 2 Samuel, that You would speak to the reality of these kingdoms and talk to us about how one, the kingdom of God, triumphs. Speak to us about human power, force. And the the little impact, the inconsequential impact that all the might of the world has on your kingdom. Speak to us in warning. Speak to us in encouragement. Speak. Behind it all, Lord, remind us, that we know how this ends. The tomb is empty. Jesus reigns. And He's coming. Lord, we need help to live in this world where one kingdom seems stronger than the other but, but isn't. Lord, we need help to remember that and to see it and to know how to act in it. And so, so give us help this morning, Lord. If you run through the place now, this room... Our hearts. Run through this place now and set us down before you. We're seated here, but seat us before you and cause us to see something. Cause worship to rise up in us and bring the kingdom and its reign. A little closer and a little deeper. We'll do that now for the glory of the King and for the good of his subjects, us his church. We we'll pray this in his name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Second Samuel chapter two, where we will again come in contact with Abner, the the commander of what was formerly King Saul's army. We met him last week in verse 8 as he set up this man named Ishbosheth, son of Saul. Set him up as king over most of Israel, not all of Israel. The large tribe of Judah in the south, they had chosen another king. In an event that we've been waiting for for quite some time now, Judah, in the city of Hebron, had anointed David as king. Finally, the kingdom of David has come. And because David is the one that is anointed by the Lord, who is uniquely after the Lord's own heart, this is David's kingdom and it is also God's kingdom. It is David ruling as king beneath the king, the Lord. The Lord's kingdom finally is planted in this one little city, a marvelous thing that we saw. And, and, and immediately, as soon as it is planted, we see another kingdom set up by Abner. And in so doing, typifying something that didn't just start with Abner, has been part of the world from the beginning and will remain so till the end. A conflict between two kingdoms. One, a kingdom of the Lord, which is a, a glorious kingdom that is centered on dependence on a God who is dependable. This is what we discussed last week. A God who calls us to depend on him and who is dependable to, to bless, to shower onto his subjects marvelous, good, gracious love. A marvelous thing. And then, in contrast to that, another kingdom, the kingdom of man, set up, typified with Abner, who wants nothing to do that but wants, in fact, to live independent of God under his own authority. He thinks he has a better way, and so he sets up a son of Saul. That, that is how the world works. It starts last week in Second Samuel. see it again extending into our passage for today. And we're going to ask the question today, here, here are these two kingdoms, what happens as they are in conflict? How is one advanced or one put down? How is one grown or one curtailed? It's going to be kind of a subject on the table this morning in the second half of 2 Samuel 2. And the answer is not by force. Not by any exertion of human power, though humans will try. In both directions, to both suppress the kingdom of God and to advance the kingdom of God. Humans will try with human power, and that's not how it works. So the passage puts before us this morning... Verses 12 through 32 of chapter 2. I'm going to read that the whole section, the whole last half of chapter 2, and then pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details before making a couple of overarching observations. 2 Samuel 2, beginning in verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, Went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. And they arose and passed over by number twelve from Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then can I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. And then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers?' And Joab says, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah, and they crossed the Jordan and marched the whole morning, and they came to Mahanaim And Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Second Samuel chapter 2. The passage begins by describing two military forces, two two armies of sorts, probably not very big, but substantial, hundreds at least, that went out from their respective cities. Abner led a force out from Mahanaim, that city where he had set up Ishbosheth as king. It's across the Jordan River to the north. He came quite some distance down to Gibeon, which is in the neighborhood of Jerusalem, much further than Joab traveled from Hebron. So they come together there, And they meet at Gibeon, and the commanders sit down on opposite sides of a pool of water there. They sit down. Now, understand the setting here. Abner's initiating this. He's come a much longer distance. He's coming down towards Hebron with a military force. The Joab then goes out to meet. He intercepts him. So Abner's on the offensive here. He's initiating. It's fair to call him the aggressor as long as we understand that he does not mean for there to be an all-out-to-the-death battle. But he's an aggressor here. These two are enemies. They have two different kings, and both of them think the other is illegitimate. They're not buddies, but they're not yet warring enemies. They sit down to talk. Separate, but to talk. And then Abner initiates one more time and says, let the young men arise and compete before us, by which he means the warriors. Let the warriors arise and compete to play, to have a game, a contest. That's what the word's about. What what, what does he have in mind? Well, evidently, given what goes wrong, it's an armed contest. They're not playing football. They've each got a weapon. It's a contest with weapons. Perhaps it would be better, easier for us to get in our minds if you think in, in another, another time. But if you think gladiator or if you think even medieval times of like jousting or armed conflicts there, that's the kind of armed game that Abner has in mind. Send the warriors out and let them compete. It's real fighting, but not intended to be fighting to the death. Think even, even of the gladiators. Think of that. The whole, the whole idea of the thumbs up or thumbs down is that once one gladiator triumphs, beats down, strikes down the other one, he's not dead yet and might recover if not administered the final blow. It's a fight to the death which leaves one fighter triumphant and one fighter cast down, bloodied, defeated, conquered even when he comes back to life, even when he lives. That's what Abner has in mind. And what does he want them to contend for? For Israel. You get your twelve from David, and I'll get my twelve, not from me, I'll get my twelve from Ishbosheth. This king's twelve and that king's twelve, and let's see which king's twelve wins. They're contesting, they're fighting for Israel. Hoping not to wipe out Israel, but to leave one side bloodied, cast down, and knowing it has been conquered. That's the idea. And Joab says, okay, let them contend. So they rise up, and then it all backfires. They wanted to settle the question of the kingdom by force, by force of arms, and it all backfires All 24 guys fall down. And a brutal fight breaks out. This backfires on Abner. It's a big mistake on Abner's part. They lost badly. It was repeated down in verses 30 and 31. They lost very badly. A mistake on Abner's part is he wants to advance the kingdom by force, his own kingdom by force. And then in the middle we get a story that cuts the other direction. We get a story of Abner and Asahel. Asahel is one of these these three brothers that we, we have met already and will continue to meet. Aggressive, kind of bloodthirsty guys. And Asahel knows what the right thing to do here is chase down the commander of the enemy forces and kill him. That's the right thing to do put down this rebellion and he's bent on it and so he runs and runs and Abner twice tries to avoid facing him he twice tries to persuade him go attack somebody else he even says I hope to remain on good standing with your brother I expect to euphemistically see his face again how am I going to be friends with your brother if I kill you I don't want to fight you. I do not want to kill you, but Asahel keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming, and so in self-defense, Abner strikes him down. Not even using a weapon in the way most likely to cause death. I mean, if, if you're trying to kill somebody, you use the business end. I mean, if it kills him. It kind of backfires on Asahel's cause there. Abner kills him and Asahel's dead, which motivates his two brothers to keep pursuing Abner, now even more intent on killing him. And the battle kind of draws to a climax that doesn't become a climax, it just fizzles away. As darkness falls and Abner's forces are all gathered, he speaks out to Joab in 26 and 27. They have an exchange, and Abner's words surely are self serving. He wants out of this fight, but they're true also. The sword has a ravenous appetite. And this kind of thing will only end in bitterness when brother pursues brother. So stop. Joab responds with an oath, the exact meaning of which is disputed. Some, some think that he hears Abner... Some interpret Joab's response to be one of, of hearing Abner cry, Uncle, I give up. Please stop. Okay, if you hadn't have asked us to stop, we wouldn't have. I think more likely, given the word order and the context... Joab's still angry and swears not about his words and the pursuit next morning, but his words from this morning, essentially saying, if you hadn't have started all this this morning with this stupid idea, there wouldn't have been any of this pursuit. I think it's more likely that's what he's saying. Whichever way it goes, he stops. Darkness falls, they part go their separate ways, And Joab and his men arrive at Hebron, and a new day dawns on them, a day of civil war, as the next chapter reveals. It's an unfortunate chapter. Something comes of this that nobody intended when it started, but it's unfortunate because both of them, both sides, turn to something. They turn to force in an attempt to drive their idea of kingdom That doesn't work. So we're going to unpack that and make two observations. First, the first observation is this. God's promised kingdom cannot be trumped by force. God's promised kingdom cannot be trumped by force. And by by trumped, I mean, as you know, if you play card games that have the idea of trump cards in them, in a card game with trump cards, a trump card is a special card that's played on, on what would otherwise be a, a winning card, a winning play. Somebody plays something, they think, I've won, and then somebody else plays a trump on top of it and says, no, in fact, I have surpassed you, I have won. That's how some card games work. That is not how the kingdom of God works. There is no trump. When he plays the winning card, when God plays the winning card, it cannot be trumped, it cannot be defeated by any other means. There's no other conceivable play, maneuver, idea that is higher or more powerful or stronger. Not even military force. Which is the point of the passage. So I'm going I'm to talk about force in general, but, but we're, we've got the pinnacle of force right here. Force of arms, military force. Now, it's very important that we remember something that we saw last week, that we know Abner's mind here. Look ahead again at chapter 3, verse 9. If you don't remember this from last week, just glance ahead at it. We'll look at it more next week. But Abner, in, in a time of conflict with Ishbosheth, says something in 3, verse 9 that is, that is remarkable. You see Abner's behavior, and then he says something that is remarkable. He knows full well what God's promise is. He knows full well what God is doing with David, that God has sworn to give to David the throne over Israel all the way from north to south. That's what God has said. He just doesn't like it. And is going to try to do something else about it. He knows God has moved in a powerful way to bring about David's kingdom. And he says, I have a better idea. I'm going to set up another king, and by force of arms, I'm going to lift him up to triumph over God's kingdom. It's remarkable. That's why he initiates 12 verses 12. That's why he marches down on Gibeon with this military force. It's crazy, but it's common crazy but it's common the the way of thinking of the world teaches all of us that force power of whatever sort particularly military power reverses all kinds of plans and all kinds of intentions all kinds of agendas and goals someone may come up with a great idea until somebody else comes in with a sword and it changes everything that's how the world works. Might makes right. And, and in a crazy way, Abner thinks, might will make right here. Now, get this. Understand this. It's going to come... I, I realize none of us probably even own any swords Probably a lot of us own weapons. <laughs> we live in Utah. <laughs> but you're not, you're not using those weapons to advance the kingdom of God or to put down the kingdom of God. I got that. But we're going to come around to where, where force is a reality in our lives. So track with me here. It would be easy to miss the point. It would be easy to think that Abner's big mistake was not bringing a big enough force. Or he picked the wrong 12 guys. His problem was thinking force at all. That's the issue. I have a promise from God that here is a king lifted up and thrown by God. I have an idea. I can put that down. I can overcome that. I can trump it with the sword. Might. Might can make right. And in the face of that, God sits enthroned in heaven and laughs. To use the words of Psalm 2. Scoffs. Give me a break. I have enthroned my king. Not yet on Zion, but in Hebron. I have enthroned my king. I have made my choice. Period. And no weapon fashioned against me with the materials that I have made by my own word, no weapon fashioned against me stands. No. God's promised kingdom cannot be trumped by force. And in that, there is warning and encouragement. These two things, warning and encouragement. The warning. Hear this. There's a warning to all would-be Abner's. Some of whom know they are Abner's like Abner did. And some of whom don't. Be wise and stop resisting God's authority. His rule. I suspect there's a large segment of us here who just said, okay, I'll be waiting for the next point. There are some of you I am talking to directly right now. Stop resisting resisting God's authority. His kingdom cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be limited. It cannot be layered over with the trump card no matter how strong, no matter how mighty, no matter how wealthy, no matter how healthy, no matter how intelligent you are. Think very carefully about that. God's authority and his ordering of things to get done what he wants done always triumphs. I, I do not say this to be arrogant, like in your face, but just to help you understand something. You're playing a game in which you always lose, always, even when you think you've won you've lost. Psalm 2 again, if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to look at it. There's a warning there that says, kiss the Son lest He be angry with you. There's no contending. There's no discussion about two kingdoms actually in a real conflict. There is one kingdom triumphant Always, and I plead with you for your own good, stop. You contend with God, the only God who is the God of the Bible, the only God who is, who has revealed Himself in His King, King Jesus, and who reigns until, as I read in First Corinthians 15, He puts every single enemy under His feet. That happens. And humankind, crazy but common, says, I have a better idea. Look at my might. I will set up my own kingdom and I will reign. It cannot be stopped. No matter how physically strong or clever or financially powerful you are, you have no power. He's set up as king and right now pleads with you, calls you, commands you to stop the rebellion. He pleads in mercy now. There is an end where it's not about mercy. It is in mercy now. Come now. There is a warning there. And and I I want to be clear, I'm also talking to Christians. Though obviously most of my language is, is directed at folks who are not yet Christians. Christians, we can resist His authority too. Stop. There's a warning there. But there is in particular an encouragement, and I want to emphasize this. Because it is very common for us who live in a powerful, anti-Christ world to be filled with fear. As we look out at a world all around us and do a calculation or two and realize it ain't about what we're about. And it's strong. Uh oh. If 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 you're aware, I mean, you come into you, you bump into that again and again and again. It is it is common. No matter where you live, as long as we live in this world, God's kingdom has not yet fully come, and we will be confronted with enemies. Some violent in this country right now, not most, but but strong opponents nonetheless. Clear resistance to God's kingdom in the laws of the land, in the sentiment of the workplace, in the next door neighbor's yard, across the fence. It's clear. Set against the will of the Lord and His kingdom. And while it may not always show itself in overt attack, it's there. Think about this. Let's think small first. Think, think personal and small. I'm going to use an example here that is extremely common, unfortunately. Common even for some in our church. If not common for you, common for people you know. Think of a spouse, for those of us who are married, who decides to leave you. And all the wreckage and the fear that that causes. Put yourself there if you're not there. Put yourself in your friend's shoes. All the fear that that brings with regard to financial stability and child issues and shame and loneliness and a sense of vulnerability as strangers called lawyers and judges exercise authority to decide so many things about your future. This is a worldly power at work here. What those folks decide is what will happen. Judges and lawyers and law and child counselors and mediators and police officers, worldly authority, a force to bring about an end, a conclusion that certainly has never processed what does the Lord want here. Never thought about it because none of them are Christ followers. Not the ones who made the law, not the ones who enforced the law, not the ones who adjudicate the law, not the ones who argue the law. All of it about you as you sit there at the mercy of the world. That's frightening. And those folks are not even intentionally anti-kingdom of God. They, They aren't. There's no intentionality in it, but there's reality in it. There's a fear there, a triumph of the kingdom of man will come upon you, and you will be subject to something that will lead you away from the enjoyment of the blessings of the kingdom of God. And there you are, vulnerable before the power of the world. It's very personal, and I picked an example that probably has no intentional hostility in it. Let me move to something else that has some intentional hostility and some much larger picture. If you've been watching the news recently, I'll pick just two things from any number of things that we could pick. There's been been a lot in the news about the legislature of Texas these days and the Supreme Court of the United States. Where people are arguing issues, it's abortion in Texas, this time gay marriage at the Supreme Court. Where people are arguing issues, very intentionally pursuing something that is contrary to the kingdom of God. His will, His way, His goodness, His agenda, His glory. Very consciously arguing something. In both those cases, you could pick any number of things, but there's, but there's something very big picture a war being waged in our country between two kingdoms. Always. Chuck Colson wrote a book decades ago, Kingdoms in Conflict, which he's talking about these two kingdoms. I don't remember all of it, but I remember it was very helpful in helping me think through as a, as a political science major, thinking through what does politics and government with God look like and how does this work together? But the reality is there are kingdoms and they are in conflict and there are every single day in courtrooms and, and houses of legislature all across the country, wars going on. And we are at the whim of all of that. You may vote. You, you may give a donation to cause X or cause Y. But largely, it's just going to happen to us, whatever it is. It is the power of the world out there. My goodness. What are we going to do? Big picture intentionality or little unintentional but very personal what what are we going to do in the face of the power, the force, that has the, effect, the intentional or unintentional effect of forcing upon me, the subject of God's kingdom, the reign of another kingdom? What am I going to do? I'm going to rest in the encouraging, joyful truth that the kingdom of God cannot be trumped. By any human power. You understand that? I am not going to become indignant. I'm not going to become indignant. I'm going to rest in the good news that the kingdom of God cannot be trumped. How do I know that? How do you know that? I would suggest that the most important, the central way that you know that. Can you guess what I'm going to say? I hope. Something about the cross and the empty tomb. First Corinthians 15 that I read earlier is true. The kingdom of this world saw finally the heir of the kingdom sent into its midst vulnerable for them and they killed Him. Thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness. They killed Him. And He rose and He reigns having put to death death And bringing all other enemies, every single enemy, to heal beneath his authority. One by one by one by one by one. That's what he's about right now. And you know that he's about that because the tomb is empty. Fact of history, not religious opinion. It can be, and I'm getting ahead a little bit in the second point, but it can be terrifying to look at the force out there against which you can do nothing and realize that you are subject to it until Christian bring it forward and realize there is a greater force that has spoken on the issue. Has spoken. He has declared the end here in the beginning. Weapons have been fashioned against him and they have failed. His kingdom has come and it is coming. The promised kingdom has been promised and cannot be trumped. By any human force or power or authority or plan, which is tremendously encouraging, but does raise another issue for us in in that we also recognize that it might not be happening on our timetable or according to the way we would do it. That's a challenge. And with that challenge, a temptation is presented to us to kind of help. kind of help things along in the direction we know they're supposed to go, when we know they're supposed to go there. And that's the point when it becomes common for us then to take into our hands force and use it. That leads us to the second point. Here's a second observation. God's promised kingdom is not to be advanced by force either, but rather by His Spirit. God's kingdom can't be trumped by force, nor is it to be advanced by force. Human force I'm talking about. Rather, God advances His kingdom not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit, says the Lord. That's a verse from Zechariah, you may recall. That our passage points out the same truth less clearly than it teaches the first point. But it is teaching this point in the story of Asahel. Now, understand a little tip about how you interpret the Bible. This is not to say that it's always wrong to chase down an enemy. You could read plenty of stories about battles in the Bible where the Israelites pursued them all day long and it was all good and fine and right and it was a great triumph. But the author here, in this case, has taken great pains to show us something. To show us Abner not bloodthirsty. He didn't even really want a real to the death battle. And Abner concerned to maintain some sort of relationship with Job. And Abner twice trying to persuade Asahel to go somewhere else, do something else. Stop. What are you doing? Pressing this, pressing this, pressing this. So at the end, when we see what happens, we say, Asahel, you fool. You fool. You fool. The the author has set us up to to know that in this case, Asahel was a fool. And then we realize, just like his brothers, Abishai, his brother, Abishai, David took Abishai into Saul's camp when Saul was asleep, and Abishai was the guy. Oh, let me pin him to the ground. Let me pin him to the ground. Let me pin him to the ground. And Joab, we'll see later, is going to murder Abner even though David made a covenant of peace with them. These guys, they know the right thing to do. Kill these guys. That's the right thing to do. Here's David, God's king. Anybody oppose opposes him, the right thing to do is kill them. That's the right thing to do. Ask the hell you fool. That's not the right thing to do. That's not how the kingdom comes and his will is done. With us taking into our hands power, striking out according to our own wisdom. We add to that Abner's comments on verse 26, certainly self serving, but they're right. This sort of thing only ends in bitterness. The sword has an appetite, it's wrong to pursue it. God's promised kingdom is not to be advanced by force either. The kingdom of God is not championed by force. Not military force here, but, but all the other types of force. Power. Whatever we do to try to work a situation to get an outcome that seems otherwise unlikely or in doubt, but we know is just the right one. Commonly, Sometimes in, in clearly sinful ways that are, that are ugly, we might use words like manipulation or threat, pouting, Christians, sometimes we know what the right end is and we try to get there in some way. But, but let me set aside all, all sinful ways, all sinful manners, and let's talk about good uses of power, force, or influence. Because that's where our biggest problem lies. More commonly, the force or effort we are tempted to exert on a situation is not itself sinful. It's the motive behind it that's the problem. Let's talk about a couple examples. If you live in the United States and think of Texas or the Supreme Court, It's perfectly permissible, good even, to be engaged in that political, legal process, however it is you can be. If you're a lawyer and you're, by some reason or another, before the Supreme Court, argue. Think. Make an argument. If you're a legislator, think process ramifications, make laws, by all means. This is the United States. It's good to engage with that. Those are are legal, permissible, assuming they're done legally, ethically, legal and permissible exercises of force. That's not the problem. The problem is behind it when we begin to look at why. Why? Why are you doing that? Well, to get this good law passed. Sure, okay, I mean another level behind that. What's going on in here? And your emotion will betray you. Your emotional response to victory or to defeat will betray what you really think. How many people, how many Christians, don't raise your hand, how many Christians when they heard the Supreme Court verdict if you were at all surprised, which you shouldn't have been, how many Christians said, oh no, oh, what's going wrong with this country? Many. Many. Why? I would suggest because somewhere in there they hoped in the Supreme Court to maintain the kingdom of God. Might not put it like that, but you see, a, you see a standard, you see something that's right, and you say, "In the Supreme Court, I trust," or "In the lawyers before the Supreme Court, I trust." Hold on, hold on. Now, so that you don't tar and feather me at the door, <laughs> let me make clear yet again: it's okay to argue. It's okay to argue well. It's okay to try hard. Whichever way you think it should go, whether you're in Texas or Supreme Court or wherever else, obviously I just picked two examples, it's okay, it's good, it's fine to argue and to try to win a case, great. What I'm talking about is that when you lose, you go, oh no, what's going to happen to us now? Nothing. Reference the end of the first point. I will rest in the good, encouraging truth that the kingdom of God cannot be thwarted by any human power. Nothing will happen. Of course there are always ramifications to human actions. Of course there are. But in the grand scheme of things, God is on His throne doing all that He pleases. Joseph likely was highly concerned when he was enslaved in Egypt. It's okay to be highly concerned when you see verdict X, Y, Law, A, B. Whatever. It's, it's okay. But watch your watch your emotional response. Any, any, any loss. When when the Cubs lose well, not anymore when the Cubs lose, I'm used to it. But when <laughs> when pick pick your pick your good team. When they lose, you get a little dip of disappointment. Okay, that that's fine. Does this happen? Oh! Then you just found what you were leaning on. And it collapsed and so did you. These issues are incredibly complex. And I'm not trying to talk about the political decision per se. I'm trying to poke at Christians and say do you realize how often we ourselves know what the right end is, or so we think, and have figured out a path to get there and I will grab hold of it and cling to it and wield it and the fact that that's what you were trusting in is revealed when you say yes or no at the outcome. You're You're revealed. Because neither in the yes nor in the no has God been dethroned. Has His kingdom been trumped? Neither. Not, not either place. That's, that's big. Let me come down a little bit. Very, very small picture. Suppose you're in a church setting and you figure out through surveys and research and experts and whatnot, that phone calls to visitors make them more likely to return. And visitors who return are more likely to become involved members of churches, and involved members of churches mean that churches grow. Big churches are powerful and influential and obviously good, right? I say that facetiously in case you didn't catch that. So... We're going to make phone calls to visitors. Now, is it right to make phone calls to visitors? Of course it is. It's a nice thing to do. It's it's good to help answer questions that visitors have. You know, what kind of church are you? Where? Are you, what are you about? To help answer their questions, help them decide. You know, what's what's good for them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the motive. Why are you doing that? It's the motive behind it. And when they. When they stay in the church, yes. I figured out a way. That's a long way from killing enemies of a kingdom. But it's the same idea, the same thing in there. I figured out a way that I can do something. I can exert a little bit of influence, a little bit of force that will influence somebody to build, surely to build God's kingdom. Another example. You're on a search committee to fill the pastoral vacancy. And you're convinced Candidate A is the better guy. So you talk up his positives, avoid his negatives, and when you report back about the reference phone call you made, you shade it just a little bit. You don't say anything untrue. Just shade it just a little bit. Candidate A is the one that we need. He's the one that's right for our church. I want to help help everybody see that taken a little bit of something there that you could exert some authority, some power over, some influence over, and you have played the card. All in a good cause to find God's man to lead our congregation. Not to set up some alternative to God's kingdom, but to further God's work here. The common, very subtle point I'm trying to touch on those examples is me, a Christian, seizing upon the powers, the abilities, the force that I can exert, the little lever that I have to help along the advancement of God's kingdom, of God's church, of God's people. But it doesn't work like that. He does not surrender the advancing of His kingdom to us. We would mess it up. We do not know what is right. We do not know how to get to what is right. We get our own agendas, agendas and our own kingdoms ever so subtly intertwined, so we think we're building the kingdom of God, and actually, we're often building our own kingdom. We're misguided, we get the timing wrong. And if we were to get it all right and do the right thing in the right way at the right time in the right way, we would surely steal the glory. We have to act, but we act in dependence on God, act in humility with a very healthy aversion to any human coercion, a very healthy aversion to force. We have to act. If you're on the search committee, you have to make the reference phone call and you have to report about it. What drives you to report it straight, even? Strengths and weaknesses. A belief behind that, that God's kingdom will be worked out with the truth made known even if it's not what I think or when I think it, that with the truth made known, God's kingdom will come. That's how God presses His kingdom forward. With the truth made known, stirred by the power of His Spirit. At the bottom, this all comes down to, do you trust the truth of God in the hands of the Spirit of God or not? and that 's what I plead with you for. hold out the truth, trust him Christian there is a good a good truth laid before you. the kingdom of God comes, it triumphs, it cannot be put down, and it comes by god 's spirit using God's truth. He himself to use his truth to open eyes, to open hearts, to move people. Trust him. It does not make us inactive. It makes us active in a humble way. Humble in us in a I mean active in a in a submitted, releasing way. It will produce in you. It will produce in you rest and joy. When everything falls apart, rest and joy. When the court verdict or the law gets passed contrary to what you think is best, rest and joy. When all the strangers called lawyers and judges and mediators go against you, rest and joy. When the wrong person comes into office, rest and joy. That is good because the King reigns. Trust him for rest and for joy. Let me pray. Lord, I am thankful. I am thankful that you build your kingdom. I'm thankful to be a part of it and I'm thankful to be an instrument in it. But I'm most thankful that you carry the responsibility for it. So I ask you, Lord, Lord, Take up your responsibility. Bring your kingdom. Exercise your will. Provide for your people and protect us from temptation. Carry us all the way to the end when the last enemy is put down. The kingdom shines in fullness and is laid at the feet of God the Father. All in all. Carry us until then, Lord, I pray. And give to your people now rest and joy and contentment in the face of the forces of the world that seem strong but are not. Give them hope. Give to them humility. Build your church, Lord, dependent on you, the dependable one. It is in the name of Jesus, our King, I pray this.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.